Hello and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. Gosh darn good morning, friends. That's Sean. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I won't do that again. Uh, we're the Vertiguys, checking out the dark side of DC. We are here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. Now it's time for one of my very favorite comic books, Sandman. Yeah, what do we have this week? We're wrapping up the uh, World's End story arc. Yeah, this is Sandman number 54 through 56, the back half of World's End, which is itself kind of an intermediary story arc. The backside. The old backside. I said back half, I think. I said backside. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an intermediary story arc where we sort of last left the big canon events of the series. Morpheus had gotten into a bit of trouble by spilling family blood by Mercy killing his son Orpheus. And before we launch into the final story arc, which involves said trouble, well, which is called The Kindly Ones. Okay, well, I'm scared. Uh, we have a series of tales at this, the in-between-the-worlds. Yeah, this issue is Sandman number 54, The Golden Boy, and the cover shows us kind of a creepy-looking 90s CG politician. I thought that was the face of JFK. Is it JFK? I can't confirm. Maybe it's a composite of presidential features, like JFK's mouth and Ronald Reagan's eyes. Well, I just said it was creepy and CG-looking, and it sounds like you're describing a way to get something creepy and CG-looking. It's so. kind of like the smoking man. Anyway, there's this character who I think we can kind of guess is presidential. He's got, or somebody's got a hand held up, and the hand has stars and stripes superimposed across it. Yep. This issue is written by Neil Gaiman. For the next three issues, scenes at the inn are penciled by Brian Talbot with inks by Mark Buckingham. The colors are by Danny Vazo, and the covers are by Dave McKeon. This issue, the tale, is illustrated by Mike Allred. Previously in World's End, basically, we have Brant, Tucker, and Charlene Mooney, two colleagues who are not friends who tried to drive cross-country and got caught in a storm. Turns out to have been a reality storm, because they ended up in a place between worlds, World's End, at the inn, where they are stuck, trapped by the storm, as are a bunch of other people from other times and realities, telling stories. Now, Brant is kind of lost in the World's End, and he's reflecting how it has more rooms than any bar he's seen in the real world. Not that he hangs out in bars, or knows what the real world is. It's not a bar, the innkeeper apparently told him. It's an inn. And he was given a room. Yeah, so he had a long sleep. He doesn't know how long. He wakes up to find a cheese sandwich waiting on a tray by the door. The bread was new-baked, and the cup of coffee beside it was piping hot. Tasted great, too. Yeah, that's a good-looking sandwich. Brent looks like kind of a goofus eating it, though. With his teeth stuck out like that. I don't know. Now is where he becomes really lost, because when he goes to go back downstairs, first he's interrupted by some apparitions, and then he finds a little library nook where he thought the staircase should be. Yeah, and he is surprised by a bald Asian man he will later describe as Oriental. Right. Unusually, they start talking, and this guy says he wasn't brought to the inn by a storm. He is deliberately traveling between worlds. Yeah, and we get more... Somebody else makes a similar comment later. Mm -hmm. When this guy learns that Brant is from America, he asks which one and who were the last several presidents. And upon hearing Brant's recitation, which matches ours, he says, Ah, you come from one of those Americas. You have my sympathies. Yeah, Brant is like Jimmy Carter. And when he gets to Jimmy Carter, the guy's like, oh, so sorry. <laughs> so this guy begins to tell the story of the one he follows. 
And there we launch into our tale. The Golden Boy. And the one he follows is Prez, the first teen president. Right, Prez Rickard was the star of the short-lived four-issue series. Prez, first teen president, created by Joe Simon and Jerry Grandinetti, which ran in 1973. And another character we're going to meet in a little while here, Boss Smiley, Prez's adversary and would-be patron, is also a character from that series. Yeah, although he's kind of completely different here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But despite Prez being a fairly short-lived series, Prez has popped up other places throughout the DC universe for years, including most recently in uh, Green Lantern Huckleberry Hound one-shot. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, that sounds like it's packed with delights. (laughs) Yeah, it's by Mark Russell. It's real good. Is he the guy who wrote Flintstones? Yeah. Okay. And Snagglepuss. Right, okay. So, his mother named him Prez, which is short for president. Because she knew that he was going to be president. Yeah. When he was growing up, he would say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, not because it was required. He really meant it. When Prez was six, President Kennedy told the American people not to ask what their country could do for them, but instead to ask what they could do for their country. Prez Rickard knew that already. The storyteller here says, My people have, of old, divided the world into two kinds of people, hedgehogs and foxes. Hedgehogs know one big thing. Foxes know lots of little things. Prez Rickard knew two big things. One of them was America, the other was time. Have you ever heard that system of dividing before? No, it's news to me. Okay, so Prez lives in a town which is famed for having clocks. Every house and store has its own clock, and they were all at different times. But when Prez was 16, he adjusted every clock in town to match. The very same year, Congress gave 18-year-olds the vote, and of course, they lowered the age requirements on Congress and the presidency to 18. Right, which led to a wave of teenage representation government, which kind of crested with Prez. I just want to point out here that that is the origin story of Prez from the original comic book series. Oh yeah, all this is accurate to the original Prez series? Yeah. Now interrupting this story, we get almost a non-sequitur, as the narrator tells us. The prince of that world was Boss Smiley. We see this man here, he's got this grotesque, smiley-shaped face. He's got, you know human flesh on it, but it is a giant smiley face. Right. Big and circular from the front, very thin from the side. And he's always smiling, even though he doesn't ever seem to be very happy. Well, he's never not happy. We also learn that most people in this world wear his sigil, which is to say smiley faces, although they don't believe he exists. Yeah, they just kind of wear them, they don't know why. Kind of like Cassidy and Batman, right? Wears his sigil, doesn't really believe he exists. (laughs) Right. So I like that Boss Smiley here takes Prez to a high place where he can see all of America. Okay, yeah. So this, the high place specifically in this entire scene are references to Satan's third temptation of Christ as depicted in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, In the Gospels, Satan takes Christ to the top of a mountain where they can see all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan offers them to Jesus if he will just kneel to him and worship. Well, Sean, you're kind of taking the magic out of the show notes, but... But yeah, that's I that I try reference. to do a little research ahead of time if I can. So, very clearly setting up a pair of roles here, especially if you're familiar with the story. Prez is a messianic figure and Boss Smiley a satanic one. Yeah, so when Prez is 18, Boss Smiley shows up and takes him to this high place and promises him all the cities and states of America. And all he has to do is remember who he owes it to. It's a kind offer, sir. I will be president, sir, but I'll do it my own way and in my own time. No thank you, Boss Smiley. Prez Rickard walked away then, and Boss Smiley, well, he just smiled. 
So Perez works really hard. Works in local government, working his way up towards the presidency. One night, he wakes up to find then-President Richard Nixon in his bedroom. I wrote in my notes, a surprise Nixon is never a good thing. <laughs> well, it's weird, because Nixon does not seem to be like... I guess he's here as a as a discouraging figure, but not as an openly evil one. Do you think he's here as an agent of Boss Smiley? He's a harbinger. No, I think he's trying to tell him that, that just tell him how it is. Okay, okay. Nixon tells Prez that he'll be president, because he's already heard this from on high. They tell you things when you're president. And he says, nothing that Prez does in the White House matters, nor does voting, and he'll never be appreciated until 20 years after his term. In hindsight, even Warren Gamaliel Harding looks good. You, uh, follow me? <laughs> I missed that line, and he uses Warren Harding's middle name. All right. I mean, why would you not use that one? I want to make a difference, sir. You don't get to make a difference. You don't get to do jack shit. You know what you get, sir? You get an entry in the history book, and every 15 minutes every day at Disney World, an animatronic puppet wearing your face will wave or nod when the spotlight hits it. So take it for what you can get, kid, and milk it for all it's worth. It's your moment in the spotlight. Sir, what about making the world a better place? I, uh, I'm not following you. If I'm president, I want to make a difference. I want to try and make it easier for people to live, to heal the divide between rich and poor, between black and white, the possessors and the dispossessed. I want to make America the kind of place I dreamed it was as a kid. Make it someplace to inspire the rest of the world. A dream of freedom, celebration of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ah, uh, well, I better be running along. Nice to meet you, Prez Rickard. Nice to meet you too, Mr. President. Yeah, Nixon's kind of taken aback by that idealism, but Prez doesn't lose it. Yeah, and in the weeks leading up to his electoral victory, there are several omens. Yeah, like a baby born with a birthmark in the shape of the continental U.S. Or a casino that spills all of its jackpots simultaneously. In addition, many blind people regained their sight, deaf people regained their hearing, and an uncountable number of organic or hysterical illnesses, some of a terminal nature, spontaneously vanished, never to return. Here we have a blind guy whipping off his sunglasses in shock, kind of luminescent glowing. So, Prez gets elected just shy of his 20th birthday, which makes him America's first teen president. Right. And he's seen here in a convertible with a bunch of his friends. There's confetti flying all over the place. There's also a smiley face, which has a bit of red confetti on it, which sort of makes it resemble the button. Oh, from Watchmen. Right. Yeah, that's a pretty subtle visual reference, if it is one indeed. And he's a great president. He resolves the energy crisis, he reduces the budget deficit and the national debt. He even hosts an episode of SNL where he's so funny he inspires John Belushi to give up the drugs. I suppose Prez showed me you didn't need to be fucked up to work at your peak. I mean, here's this guy working 18 hours a day, fate of the free world depends on him, and he's clean, you know? That was scary. Prez cuts down on nuclear weapons. He's not worried about the Russians, he says. He'll leave it to the Russians to worry about the Russians. There was doubt as to whether he'd be able to push the bill through Congress, but he managed. Prez could do anything. In the third year of Prez's presidency, Boss Smiley comes to visit. He expects Prez to be proud of his accomplishments, but Prez just says, it's a start. A start? You've done more for the world than any other president in history. No, but I've made a start. So you're going to run again? Yes, he intends to run again. And by the way, he mentions that he read the FBI and CIA files on Boss Smiley, or he would have if they existed. There's no files on him. Like, he doesn't even exist. Well, Prez boy, that's as it should be. You know, 
it might not be healthy for you to run again. Are you threatening me? How can you be threatened by a man who doesn't exist? Says Boss Smiley, and then he turns insubstantial and flies away like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Not very friendly, though. Well, he is smiling. <laughs> yeah, he's a creep. So, Prez runs for a second term, and he wins against both a Democrat and Republican candidate. The Dems uh, try to cash in on the teen government craze by running their own 18-year-old. The Republicans, it is implied, run Ronald Reagan. Maybe we've got the best system in the world, and maybe we haven't, but I'm delighted to have the honor of serving you all for another four years. I think I'm starting to get the hang of it. So during his second term, he does a bunch of other great stuff, and also he rekindles a romance with his high school sweetheart, Kathy. They have milkshakes at McDonald's. You can clearly see both halves of the M. Oh, yeah. They get engaged, but not long after that, Kathy gets shot dead by a mentally unstable young woman obsessed with Ted Wildcat Grant. Yeah, now Ted Wildcat Grant is a member of the Justice Society of America, so this is once again reaffirming that Sandman takes place in the DC Universe, although we don't get that many references to it. Yeah. He is the guy who taught Batman how to fight. Yeah. Created by Bill Finger and Urban Hassan, has his first appearance in 1942's Sensation Comics number 1, and more recently can be seen as mentor and hand-to-hand -hand combat instructor for younger Justice League members. The incident, by the way, is a reference, obviously, to the 1981 assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan by a young man obsessed with actress Jodie Foster. So, Prez spends time with both Wildcat and the assassin. He offered her clemency, but she still went to the electric chair. That's a bit creepy. And we drop sort of suddenly into scene with the narration taking a break. Prez goes to sleep in the White House, and he finds Boss Smiley on TV. Well, youngster, I hear your wife-to-be is dead. Yes, she was killed. Smiley offers Prez his lady love back if he will just serve Smiley, even just for the rest of the term. Camera three? Can we go over to camera three? Yeah, and we see that his fiancée is being held in a place that's dark and cold, and she has no idea what's going on. But Prez just covers his ears. I serve only the American people. This is a dream. I've fallen asleep watching the Dodgers game. It's a dream. It has to be. Kathy's dead, Boss Smiley. He closes his eyes and covers his ears and rolls over and eventually falls asleep again, and he wakes to find the TV tuned to a dead channel. Prez Rickard lay in the pale blue light of the television screen, and he cried silently into the night. Yeah, dead channel. See a dead person on a dead channel? Oh, yeah. That's kind of darkly humorous. So, we learn that Prez didn't do much more with his second term. People wanted the law to be changed so that he could run a third time. Others suggested that he be declared president in perpetuity. There was even a campaign which began in San Francisco to proclaim Prez Rickard Emperor of the United States. Hey, the Emperor of the United States! Right, that's a reference to Emperor Norton, who we saw earlier in this series. But despite all that, he just quietly stepped down. The turnout at the November election was spectacularly low. People seemed to feel that if they couldn't vote for Prez, then they had no wish to vote at all. He declined all invitations to join the boards of various corporations, to golf, or to write his memoirs. It goes on to tell us that things were no longer golden in America, and it shows Ted Grant here getting drunk. It's not that things got bad, it's just that they weren't spectacularly good anymore. I want to point out that when you say we see Ted Grant getting drunk, he is in full wildcat attire here. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he has not taken off his costume to go to a bar and get drunk. 
The new president sends men to Prez to ask for advice. He just politely refuses. In the White House is a tiger-skin rug, shot and killed many years ago by Teddy Roosevelt. The feet of the great walk over that tiger-skin each day. It listens to policy being formed and secrets being spoken. Now, do you think that tiger would rather be dead and in the seat of power, or alive and walking the jungle of India, sniffing the wind for the scent of game? It would rather be alive, they said. And so would I, said Prez Rickard, and he sent them away. So at this point, he disappears completely. Yeah, sort of Forrest Gump style, he leaves his home and wanders America. And Prez sightings become commonplace, much like Elvis sightings. In fact, there's even a claim that he was seen fighting crime with Elvis. Yeah, and we also get a panel here of him kind of looking like Jesus at the top of a, of a mount. Yeah. There were other rumors, other stories, as the years went by. Tales of marvels and miracles. He also gets many deaths. Yeah, one day he dies, and no one really knows how. There are a lot of stories. Killed robbing a bakery to feed orphans, stabbed by Kathy's now-undead killer, assassinated on the president's orders, or perhaps shot by his own Secret Service protection on his return home, since they no longer recognized him. There's nothing in the news about Prez's death. Everybody just knows he's dead. Now, the storyteller informs us that this is what he believes happened to Prez Rickard after he died. Right, there's no evidence for this next part. It's... Although there's no way there's evidence for all the stuff we already saw. But whatever. <laughs> well, that's true. He, he's sure about the stuff that happened alone in Prez's bedroom in the White House in the middle of the night. But there's definitely no evidence for the next part because it happens in the afterlife. Right, exactly. It is a matter of personal belief and revelation, he says. Prez meets death, and we recognize death. Yeah, death as drawn by Mike Allred. Not my favorite. She's got kind of a nice coat, a big onk necklace. I think she's sort of attired in 70s-esque garb. That is an awfully big belt buckle. So she takes him to his afterlife. So what happens now? Oh, different things to different people. It depends who you are. And you never get to learn what happens to anyone else. Prez is a special case, though. He's being taken to someone who insists on seeing him. Prez relates a parable about a watchmaker. It was something they told me at school. I've never forgotten. If you find a watch in the desert, you don't assume it was spontaneously created. You figure someone made it, that there's a watchmaker. And if the watch has stopped, then you repair it. Death says this guy didn't make the watch, he just runs the local franchise. She wishes Prez good luck, and she actually seems a little bit starstruck by him. I can't help thinking, maybe I oughta... Well, never mind, you'll be fine, Prez. Prez is escorted to the golden throne of heaven, whereon sits Boss Smiley. Yeah, and his face is now an actual smiley face, flat and yellow. He says that Prez served him whether he meant to or not, and that he, Boss Smiley, is neither God nor the devil, just the one who runs this world. Prez asks if Kathy's around, and Boss Smiley says she's not here anymore. So there are other worlds? I believe so, but this is the only significant one. Yeah, so this is like an incredible moment of injustice. For all his goodness, Prez dies and discovers that the god of his world is evil, his personal archenemy. His goodness was a mistake, and this evil god has an eternity to punish him for it. This moment is tough. I think, to begin with, you should sit at my right hand and sing praises. Hosanna, in Excelsis Gloria. You'll soon get the hang of it. So there's a whole desert filled with broken watches, Prez muses to himself. Boss Smiley, I don't think I'll stay around and sing Hosannas. I think I'll be going off to look at Americas. Must be one of them needs a Prez. Must be one of them needs fixing. He's got a smile and a thumbs up here. You aren't going anywhere. You're dead. You're mine. He may go wherever he wants. It's Morpheus! And we should note that 
Boss Smiley's offer is kind of in keeping with some traditional Christian views of heaven, that heaven is eternity in the presence of God, and God is such a, a beautiful and magnificent presence that it's well worth it. Boss Smiley is, of course, a jerk. Yeah, not so beautiful. Although, I don't know, I mean, that yellow smiley face certainly has a certain aesthetic staying power. <laughs> it's definitely made an impression on our world. So Morpheus is Prince of Stories, and since Prez is more story than man, he, he falls under Dream's jurisdiction. I can destroy you! I will destroy both of you! You come back here! But Dream says, as he leads Prez away, He would not be the first to threaten me, but I have no fear of Boss Smiley, and you are under my protection, so you need not worry. Yeah, Prez is actually a little worried that Morpheus might have gotten himself in trouble by standing against Boss Smiley, but I guess Smiley's... Just in charge of one little cosmology, whereas the Endless are much bigger than that. They go to a sort of cosmic sky area with all sorts of stars and planets and cosmic shit. But they don't stay there long. Morpheus directs Prez to a doorway. Do I, do I owe you anything, sir? You owe my sister, thanks. She drew my attention to your situation. But no, you owe me nothing. That gateway will take you where you need to go. Before stepping through, Prez tells Dream a story, which makes three layers. Neil Gaiman's story, the Asian man's story, and now Prez's story. Right. His dad left when he was four, and he left behind a broken pocket watch. Prez taught himself to fix pocket watches so he could fix this one. Practiced on others, not wanting to risk his father's. Eventually he fixed it, and then he went looking for other watches to fix. Before he leaves, he gives Morpheus his father's pocket watch. And Prez Rickard walked through Dream's door, away from Boss Smiley's heaven and out across the worlds. Some say that he still walks between the worlds, traveling from America to America, help to the helpless, a shelter for the weak. Others say that he waits to be born once more, and that this time he will not come just to one America, but to all of them. And I walk the worlds following him, seeking him, walking ahead, spreading his word. And when he comes back, wherever, whenever he comes back, I will be waiting. So this guy is kind of a follower and kind of a herald of Prez. Right, kind of an apostle of Prez. Well, since we're not reading just one story in pieces this week, what did you think of that one before we move on? I thought it was okay. I enjoyed it just as a bit of, like, classic comic book throwbackness. Mm -hmm. I've always been kind of amused that the character of Prez existed. <laughs> Uh, in the DC universe, and so, like, to get an issue about him is kind of interesting. Uh, that there's an adventure comic about a teenage president. Yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of little touches that are, that are nice in there. I kind of like the idea that, for instance, that he dies and, and nobody knows how they know that he's dead, they just do. Mm -hmm. I like the way that Gaiman plays around with the biblical references. Makes him a president, but more than that, a, a messianic figure. And in a way, that kind of pokes fun at the expectations on a president, like that what Prez accomplishes is far more than could reasonably be expected of any president. Right. Yeah. The scene with Nixon is fun. The scene where he's in the in the bedroom at night and gets spoken to through his TV is fun. Yeah. We that's saw that really again in scene. American Gods. Yeah, that's right. That one got recycled. <laughs> but yeah, a, a reasonably good issue. I think Allred mostly does a good job with the characters of Prez and Boss Smiley. We get to see his designs for two of the Endless. Yeah, neither of them look quite right to me. Mm -hmm. Morpheus has kind of a really tiny head, because he's wearing this big jacket with broad shoulders. Yeah. 
But maybe it's okay if he uh, looks a little weird. He isn't human after all. Yeah, I don't know. He just looks kind of like teen idolish. <laughs> yeah, I think I see what you're getting at. So that brings us to Sandman issue 55, Ceraments. And on the cover here, we have a skeleton. Yeah, there's a skull which seems to be looking at us, turning to look at the camera, so to speak, and a spine with ribs and a drawing of a heart, not a heart, but a drawing of a heart inside the chest. In this issue, the tale is penciled by Shay Anton Pensa and inked by Vince Locke. Brant stumbles downstairs, having finally located the staircase. He has a chat with the woman in blue, the proprietor, who agrees that the inn's interior can be confusing. We get a little moment here where Brant sees lightning out the window and counts to five before the thunder hits. He also says hello to Mr. Klaproth, and Klaproth corrects him that there are no honorifics. That's the way of his people. Charlene pipes in that Brant missed some stories. He asks if she's told hers yet and gets a no. Now Klaproth's apprentice Petrifax volunteers to tell his tale next, but he wants Klaproth's permission. Why should I stop you telling a story? Because it is a true story, Master, and because you are in it. Hey, Klaproth, I thought you said there weren't any honorifics where you come from. It is no honorific. Petrifax and Kyriel and Eucrasia here are journeymen under me. I am their master. Tell your tale, Petrifax. So we jump into Ceraments, which is two layers. Petrifax tells us that he used to daydream about other places, other than where he grew up, which is the Necropolis Letharge a city entirely devoted to the disposal of bodies. Well, I should say, the dead. That's going to come up later. So his daydreaming got him in trouble in class. Klaproth orders him to list the five methods of bodily disposal. Yeah, and I wrote that he's bad at school, and then I turned the page and he lists all five of them really well, so I guess he's not bad at school. He's actually really good at school, apparently. The five are, by the way, in case you ever wondered, earth burial, disposal by fire, mummification, disposal by water, and lastly, air burial, disposal by feeding to airborne scavengers. And seeing you find the work so easy, I'm sure you'll find it no trouble at all to prepare for us an account of the air burial occurring this evening. Tomorrow you can tell us all about it. Okay, so after class, some girls invite Petrifax down to the vaults. Not clear if they're perhaps impressed by his recitation, but that doesn't matter. He has to run to make the sky burial on Mount Calamon. Yeah, we haven't mentioned this yet. Perhaps we should. All these characters look like zombies. Yeah, even though they're just supposed to be, like, living people who live in a city devoted to death. They all have the appearance of zombies. Yeah, we called them gentlemen zombies last week. <laughs> they're all pasty white, and they're all dressed like 19th century undertakers. Well, we're going to find out there's a reason for that, too. But they are apparently alive. What's the reason for that? It's mentioned a little later that they all wear clothes that are taken off of dead clients. Ah, yes, yes. They never, they never make their own clothes. Yeah, now maybe it's just because I'm in the middle of this book right now, but this issue really reminded me of Shadow of the Torturer. Okay. Uh, Gene um, Wolfe? Yeah. And I'm not that deep into the book, but referring to the people that they work on as clients, mm -hmm. the talk of necropolises, the talk of apprentices, and the fact that everyone looks kind of pale and dead, mm -hmm. all resembles Shadow of the Torturer quite a bit. Okay. This is obviously some kind of other plane, I think. Even though their dress and technology look somewhat archaic to us, I think this is meant to be present day. 
Sure. I mean, since the reality storm spreads across time, it's hard for us to really know. But this isn't taking place in our past, anyway. Right, yeah. No, this isn't meant to be historical. This is like a fantasy world. So Petrofax runs to the mountain, and he arrives late. Yeah, he has to run for like an hour straight, and he's still late. But when he gets there, the master in charge of the sky burial, Master Hermas, reassures him. Another few minutes will make no odds to the client. And then they introduce him to the tools that they'll be using. There's yeah. a boning knife. You need a hammer to get at the brain pan. There's sandalwood that uh, attracts the birds. Yeah, they have to light a little fire to send up smoke to attract birds. So they undress and dismember the body, and they light the fire to attract the birds. Hermas comments that to him this is the truest reflection of what the necropolis does. Complete disposal, in hours, with no memorial left behind. Everything is given to the birds. The flesh, the lights, the meat, even the bones. Rough ground and mixed with barley. Everything is swallowed by the sky. What's left of the client, Hermas asks rhetorically. And the answer is three things. Pride in a task well done. The attendant's memories of the client. And a stain on the rocks, but the rain will wash that away. Their task completed, Petrofax agrees to stay for the ceremony. One guy produces some food. They eat without washing their hands. It would be disrespectful to wash the client off. Yeah, and supposedly the client imparts flavor. Those in the necropolis, Hermas says, are not ignorant of foreign customs. Rather, they know all there is to know about every other culture's funeral customs. And where this client comes from, he says, after a sky burial, they tell stories. Now, the apprentice named Mig says that he'll go first, and he has a story about a hangman. Mig's tale. Three layers. Now. He knows a lot of euphemisms for hangmen, as we, uh, as we see here over the course of this page. Uh, riding the three-legged mare. There's a the, really good one a couple pages down. The final dance. He refers to a hangman as a dancing master at one point. Okay, so there's this land where they execute criminals by hanging, but small towns have trouble finding hangmen. Nobody wants the job in a place where everyone knows you because they're social outcasts. Nobody wants to go around in their life with everybody knowing that they're thinking about hanging them. You know, how much rope they would take. Yeah. They talk about Jack Ketch. Oh, yeah. Jack Ketch makes an appearance in Fables. Jack Ketch, I guess, is just a, 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 a word for a hangman. He was a headsman. He was a famous headsman who was remarkably incompetent. Took a lot of hits to take people's heads off. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Okay, so to get a hangman, what they would do is they would choose one of those about to hang. They'd give him the choice. You can hang tomorrow or you can be hangman. But understand, the sentence was only postponed. This person still eventually had to hang. Right. It's a temporary reprieve. Yeah, as long as you're the hangman, you don't have to hang. But when you're done, you have to. So there's this guy, Billy Scutt. He's a resurrectionist. He dug up corpses to sell for the study of anatomy. And they make him hangman. Yeah, and he's an excellent hangman. He was the best hangman the town had had. When he hanged you, you stayed hung. Trap would open, you'd cut your caper on nothing and be clean gone. He wasn't a happy man, though he took pride in his profession as he never had with body snatching. Good clean drops that snapped spines and ended lives sharp as a cut. Nobody was ever hanged twice when Billy Scutt was the dancing master. There were some said it was because he looked at each poor soul preparing for the final dance and knew that there, but for the grace of the town council, went Billy Scutt. And he's allowed to go home and be with his wife and children so long as he keeps up the hanging. He's good at his job and he does it for many years until he is too old and tired to get out of bed. And then he knew he had to hang. They say Jack Ketch is an excellent physician, but I have a desire to die in my own bed. 
The sheriff's men arrive to take Billy away. We hear you're terrible sick. They've been saying it all over town. How terrible sick you are. Me? I'm old, that I'll give you. But I'm not ill. Here he has my very favorite description for a hanging. I'll be sending him off for a hearty choke with caper sauce for years to come. Caper sauce? You've got to hang before you die, Billy. That's the rule. Well, I'm not a planning to die for a long time yet. So if you two gallows rats keep on with your wicked ways, mayhap I'll get to tie the hemp and necktie on both of you yet. Well, he's not sick. Come on, Ned. Surely by accident, Billy Scott's voice has become a far better John Wayne impression than I ever did in Preacher. <laughs> and when the sheriff's men had gone, Billy's family loosed the rope that had been holding him up, and he collapsed. They put him back in his bed. That's great. <laughs> He's been held up by a rope. Yeah, exactly. Billy Scott died in his sleep that night unhung. He was my grandfather, and that's all, Meg says. Except he did hang once from a rope around his shoulders. That's pretty great. Right. Now another apprentice, Scroyle, begins a tale. Yeah, he reveals that he was sent to the town. His father wanted to be buried there, so he traded them an apprentice for a grave. So he shows up accompanying his father's body, and because he has provided the town with an apprentice, his father gets a place to be laid to rest. Yeah, I like that. That was nine years ago. Since then I've done the things that all apprentices do. I crept down to the lower catacombs and stayed there all night on a dare and was caught and punished. I made love for the first time. It was on a stone tomb in the eastern quarter, and I spent my seed on a carven skull. I learned to dig a hole six feet down and eight feet along in a handful of hours. So these people are alive, and they live normal lives, except that every aspect of their life is built around death, tombs, and internment. Just being as gothy as fucking possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He says he's guarded clients all night for fear of witches stealing them, and... I've tied a client's big toes together with red twine so he shouldn't walk in the night. And we see the red twine here. That's yeah. kind of a cool panel. Yeah, he talks about lethargy and what it could do to you if you let it. Our life is spent with the dead. We are dressed in clothes we take from the dead. We feed on food offerings that arrive with our clients. It is our responsibility not to let it harden us. And it's at this point that a traveler enters his story, and this traveler does not look like a zombie at all. This is a hale and hearty red-haired fellow with a beard. It is Destruction. Hey! The Prodigal Endless. He's got a big red coat and his possessions and a bag on a stick over his back. I don't know if that means that this happened after he left his home at the end of Brief Lives, but he's traveling. Or perhaps it happened during the couple of hundred years of his absence before Brief Lives. Yeah, I'm saying... We saw him pack up his possessions in a bag like this at the end of Brief Lives. Oh, I don't know right. if that means that this is after he left or if this is just earlier in his traveling years. I don't think it's supposed to signal that it's after Brief Lives. I think it's just supposed to be one more signal that this is him. Mm -hmm. He strikes up a conversation. This is a fine city, he says, and a necessary place. This is Lethargy, isn't it? It hasn't changed much since last I was this way. The Necropolis Lethargy does not change. Everything is mutable. This isn't the first Necropolis, you know. And now Destruction embarks on a story about the first necropolis, which brings us down to layer number four. There was a necropolis before it. That necropolis, which is no longer named, went bad. In that necropolis, they began to regard what they did as a job, not a task. There was no care, no love. There was no longer a sense of completion. Bodies were placed in graves or burned, without respect or love or solace. He says no love twice in two sentences. He does. 
So this city became about disposing of bodies rather than people. Clants. We call them clants. Scroyle jumps in. Very wise of you. These people didn't. They said no prayers for the dead, nor wished them well. Yeah, so eventually the whole city begins falling apart from... Apathy, basically. Yeah, exactly. The books crumble to dust from disuse, the rivers become blocked with corpses. And then one day, six strangers come to town. And even though we see them from the back, we recognize the endless, minus despair. Our sister is dead, they said. Where's the body? Where's the offerings? asked the necropolitans. We have brought no body, said the visitors. We have come for her cerements and for the books of ritual which are in your keeping, they said. The cerament is a funeral robe. The necropolitans laughed then and called them mad. Then the oldest of the six raised his head. He was dressed in grey from head to foot, his eyes hidden in the cowl of his robe. This is destiny. This is no true necropolis, he told them. Your charter is revoked. This is no longer a city. It is over. It is ended. And a great wind came down from the mountains, and the city died. Not a stone remained on stone. The river dried up, revealing old bones. The earth swallowed the graves and the mausoleums and the buildings. And the earth crumbled to dry sand, and that necropolis was no more, and its name was forgotten. The village of Lotharge was given a charter, proclaiming it to be a necropolis. That's how your city came to be. So, destruction doing destructions work there. Ah, that's a good point. And... Interesting to think that when Destiny declares a city no longer to be a city, it simply falls apart. Like, he gives it that determination, and that determination gives it some vitality it needs to live. Yeah, this actually looks like Destiny doing something, rather than waiting for something to happen. Yeah, okay, so that's what you have to do to get Destiny to do something. Be rude at his sister's funeral. <laughs> right. And uh, we get a, a moment of levity here as... As Scroyle tells about destruction walking away, the traveler finished his bread and cheese and walked away singing out of tune, a song of his own composition. Petrofax jumps in. How do you know it was of his own composition? He told me. Yeah, so that's destruction. Yeah, the, the singing badly really, in case you didn't get it from everything else, the singing badly reminds us that this is destruction, who is bad at creation. Right. Petrofax asks if that's really how the necropolis was founded. Hermas says that Lotharge's recorded history goes back 80,000 years, and there are inscriptions on headstones older than that. At any rate, it's the oldest city in existence. But that doesn't mean, necessarily, that it's not true. Either way, it doesn't matter. Anyway, it reminds Hermas of a story. So we jump into Hermas's tale, three layers. Now this takes place when Hermas and Klaproth are children, both apprenticed to Mistress Veltis. Mistress Veltis was old even then, and would now take no more than two prentices at a time, though she made us do the work of ten. We learn that later, the two of them performed Veltis's funeral, but this is earlier, when they are children. She tells them that funerals aren't for the client. All the trappings of death are for the living. It is the final reconciliation, the last farewell. She was a great woman. I have never seen her like. Hermas remembers Veltis's skill. There was a small girl brought to us as a client crushed in a rockfall, a mess of meat and bone. And when Mistress Veltis had finished, she was the sweetest little thing in that tiny casket. You would have thought she was merely sleeping. And Mistress Veltis did all this with only her left hand, for her right was withered. Now one night there's a storm, and the prentices are unable to sleep for fear. And in the middle of the night, Veltis comes to them and tells them stories. Tales that must have been old when she was a girl. There's a couple of noteworthy things about these tales. One is that we get a tale about a man who brings back a pale bride from a magical land under the world. So that's kind of a version of the Orpheus story. Right. 
And it's also worth noting that all of these tales are about morticians or gravediggers. Like, all the tales told in, in Letharge have a gravedigger as their protagonist, because that's all they know. They're equivalent of a cowboy. Yeah. One more of the stories that she tells is about a coach full of apprentices and a master swept away from Letharge by dark magics who took refuge in a tavern where the price of Haven was a tale. Oh, yeah. So, so one of the stories that they heard from Veltus is the story that they are in now. Yeah, about World's End. You're in one! <laughs> <laughs> so let's go into Veltus's tale, which is four layers. Veltus's tale inside Hermas's tale, which is inside Petrifax's tale, which is inside the comic book by Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yes. She drops a flask of preserving fluid. This is Veltus as a small girl. Right. An apprentice herself. Yeah, and she runs away. She runs and hides in the tombs. And she goes away she's never been before, and she finds herself in a huge room with six silver ceremonies. Yeah, she's running through these catacombs. She picks her rights and lefts randomly and becomes hopelessly lost and finds something very ancient and very weird. This also deeply resembles a scene from Shadow of the Torturer. Oh, yeah? Okay. Gaiman's definitely channeling the wolf here. Well, again, maybe I'm just seeing it that way because I'm in the middle of that book right now, and it's mm -hmm. all coincidental. But it certainly strikes me as, as very similar. So there's this huge room. There are these six silver ceremonies. There's a book which is locked closed on a lectern, and a huge voice comes from nowhere that says, Which of them is dead? No one's dead, not that I know of. Just the usual people, says little girl Veltus. This is no place for you, little girl. Let me sleep until I am needed. But I dare not leave. My master will have the skin off my back. Very well. The flask is mended and filled, and your master has not noticed your absence. Now leave this place, and I will guide your feet to the world above. How do I know that you're telling the truth? She says, a fateful question. Yeah, that was the wrong question. There is a question. Had you had faith and not demanded proof, you would have been wiser. But seeing you need proof that I speak truly, look at your right hand. And the girl Veltus looked at her hand, and as she looked, it withered and twisted. That's your proof, said the voice. And the girl returned to the world above, and all was as the voice had said it would be. Over the next sixty years, she continues to search. She searches a hundred hundred times, looking for the path to that room, and she can never find it again. Now, when she's old and she knows she's dying, she has her apprentices take her to the catacombs so she can look for it one more time. They wait at the entrance for her for a day and a night. And then Veltus comes running out screaming and falls dead in front of them. And when she comes out, we see and they see, though few others seem to notice. Her right hand has been restored. And that is the end of Hermes's tale. That leaves only Petrifax to tell a tale. They ask Petrifax for a story, but he says he has none. He's never done anything, never left Letharge. He dreams of visiting other places. So with no more tales, they pack up. Petrifax goes back to Klaproth, and it takes him six months to work up the nerve to ask about that room in the catacombs. But he says, sitting in the world's end, that he only learns more when he becomes a journeyman. Hold your tongue, says Klaproth, back in the world's end. Yes. They have a litany that they go through, a call and response here, as Klaproth reminds Petrifax to keep the secrets of the city of Letharge. You have the key to the city? Yes, master. What is its virtue? To open and shut, to shut and open. Where do you keep it? 
in an ivory box between my tongue and my teeth, and within my heart where all my secrets are kept. How long is the chain to the key? As long as from my tongue to my heart. There are strangers present. You will hush now. Brant says who cares if they tell a few secrets? They're all dead anyway. I figured it all out, you see. We're dead. We're all dead. That's why we're here. Klaproth says no. If you were dead, I think I would know it. I have some experience in these matters. Brant says, well, does anyone have a better explanation? And the hostess, whose name I don't know, do you know it? I don't. The hostess says, actually, yes, I do. That's the end of issue 55. Okay, so there's a story that I've heard about this hostess, but there's nothing in here that would tell us this. Okay. I have read in a couple of places on the internet, maybe there's a crossover issue that explains this, but there's nothing in here, that the hostess is Batman villain Lady Shiva. Oh, okay. Real good at karate. Yeah, yeah. That one. Possibly the best martial artist in the DCU. Taking a break to run it in, I guess. I hesitate to say that because I just, I really have no idea where that comes from. It's an interesting idea, but there's nothing in here to support it. I guess there is, I don't know, there's just certain motifs in the art that kind of make her look Indian. Yes. Well, Shiva's not Indian. Isn't she? Lady Shiva? I meant the god Shiva. Oh, uh, yeah, the god Shiva is Indian. Is an Indian goddess. But Lady Shiva isn't? I don't think so. Okay. Um, yeah, little about where on earth she's from. And it says that she comes from a town of sailors, so her uh, ancestry is mixed anyway. But I thought she was usually depicted as East Asian, not South Asian. Fair enough. Well, does that mean you're ready to move on to Sandman number 56? Or should we talk about 55 a little bit? Let's talk about this one for a little bit. What do you think of it? Well, Petrifax doesn't have much of a story. Except that he heard some other stories one time. But most of them are pretty cool. <laughs> no, I think that's right. Yeah, Petrifax is a bit of a dull character. And that's, that's called out explicitly. He wants to be less of a dull person. He wants to actually go have experiences. Right, he wants to travel the world. But he hasn't yet. And we get sort of a recurrence of the the frequent theme that, you know, everybody knows one story. That these people all tell stories, but they're all stories that they have either experienced or been told themselves. Billy Scott's story is the story of Meg's grandfather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like the ambition of going sometimes as deep as four levels into stories, being told within stories. Yeah. And I like the way that it... Well, I like the, the concepts of Letharge, the city of pale people who run funerals for other places and other planes. And I like that what seems like a fun diversion with these sort of zombie people telling stories about burials they've been to turns into something fairly significant for the series' story and cosmology. What's that? You mean the, uh, the voice in the room? Right, that we discover something of the funeral customs of the Endless. Oh, oh, so not the voice in the room. Or is that part of it, too? Well, remember, what she finds in the room are six silver ceremonies, and when the strangers show up to, to mourn despair in Destruction Story, they are asking specifically for our sister's ceremonies. Oh, okay. So that room is like the burial place of all the Endless. Yeah, so um, the, the which of them that is dead, that's the Endless. Ah, and the voice is something bigger and older than the Endless. Right. And there are only six ceremonies, which at first you might think, 
that's because only six of them will be attending any given one's funeral. But since they show up to claim despair's ceremony, that's not what's going on. I guess what it is is that death doesn't have one. Oh. She will be the last thing in the universe to die. Yeah, that makes sense. Or destruction doesn't have one because it's during his absence. Mm, okay, as because a he member is of the endless. Because he is actually. Or I guess it could also be that when Veltus gets there, one of them has been used because despair is dead. Yeah. I like the death explanation the best. That's pretty good. But yeah, real real creepy setting. Really eerie and fun. Mm. I like Klaproth's curmudgeonliness. And it was nice to see destruction again, too. Yeah, I thought the air burial was grisly. Oh, yeah. In a sort of entertaining way. It was like that right amount of horror comic grossness. Right, yeah. So yeah, fun issue. Right. Uh, and that brings us to Sandman number 56. World's End. On the cover of this issue, we see the inn once again, and this time Dream is looking over it. Yeah, Morpheus' giant face in the sky, with a finger poking idly at the sliver of moon over the inn. In this issue, the scenes at the inn are penciled by Brian Talbot, with inks by Mark Buckingham, Dick Giordano, and, in one page, Brian Talbot. The scenes in our reality are penciled by Brian Talbot, with inks by Steve Lealoha, and the funeral is penciled by Gary Amaro, with inks by Tony Harris. As we go forward, we're going to see, you're not going to see, because you're listening to a podcast. Pay attention to the road. <laughs> we're going to see a number of different art styles over the course of these 24 pages, distinguished by a murderer's row of inkers here. Yeah, yeah, a lot of lot of famous names in there. Yeah. Mark Buckingham, Dick Giordano. Mm-hmm. Buckingham and Leia Loha would both go on to be major artists on Fables. Oh, I didn't know that Steve Leia Drew fables. Hmm. So we open here with the hostess saying that Clericon has had enough. I know he prides himself on his capacity for alcohol, but there's a thin line between intoxication and unconsciousness, and he's just about to cross it. We see Clericon here with a big old grin on his face. He's so happy. <laughs> so happy to be so drunk. But Brant changes the subject back. Hang on, you can't just say what you said and then change the subject. Say? What did I say? That you have an explanation for us. That's Klaproth. And Jim is also piling on here. He's right, you did. Well, this place is the inn at the end of all worlds. None of you were brought here. Each of you was traveling and was caught in an unseasonable storm of some kind. You made your way here by luck and took refuge and advantage of the hospitality offered. And you will leave when the storm is over. Good lady, might I be so bold as to ask for a jeroboam of crisp white wine? A Chablis, perhaps, or a white Bordeaux? This is Cluricon, suddenly reviving to marginal consciousness. Cluricon, you're drunk. You're not having anything else. Oh, well, that's perfectly reasonable. Collapses face down on the table. Oh, that's good stuff. Okay, so the reality storm brought them here, but Charlene asks, what is a reality storm? Well, sometimes big things happen, and they echo. These echoes crash across the worlds. They are ripples in the fabric of things. Often they manifest as storms. Reality is a very fragile thing, after all. And she's sort of doing a, a bit of a dance or a goddess pose as she says this. The butterfly call, maybe? <laughs> Brent doesn't buy this. It's not real. It's a dream. It's not the real world. If you think reality is fragile, you should try banging your head against a brick wall. That's reality. Now, the proprietor tells them a fairly grim explanation for what's been going on here. This is what's left when the real worlds end. This is no part of the realm of dreams or death or darkness. 
When a world ends, there's always something left over. A story, perhaps. Or a vision. Or a hope. This inn is a refuge after the lights go out. For a while. Yeah, and it seems like she's sort of made the walls go away here. And right, so now we see not just the in-sized inn that our characters have been gathering in, but the greater inn that encompasses huge mobs of people from tons of different worlds. Right. Yeah, there's just a crowd of people as far as the eye can see. So like I said, this is a pretty grim suggestion. All the realities have ended, and these people are all that's left, or at least all that's left of their worlds. Fortunately, we're going to find out that's not what happened. The proprietor has business elsewhere in the room, but Charlene has a question for her. Why the stories? Specifically, Charlene objects that these are all what she calls boys' own stories. Even the story Brant heard upstairs was a Horatio Alger tale about a boy who became president, she says. Horatio Alger is an American writer known for rags-to-riches narratives in which young men raise themselves out of poverty by hard work and goodness. So, good reference, deep cut. I mean, sure, they pass the time. They entertain. But how do they help you make sense of anything? The world isn't like that. People don't walk into the dreams of cities. The world isn't like that. So this is kind of going to Neil Gaiman's idea of male stories and female stories, right? Yeah, and Brandt and Charlene are taking this world's end thing very differently. Brandt is taking it all in stride because he thinks it doesn't matter. They're either dead or they're in dreams. Charlene just outright rejects all the weird shit that these stories contain. This is impossible. It's a lie. Plus, she's also pissed off that there aren't any women in these stories. Which isn't true. Well, Jim points out that she's a woman. But Charlene disagrees. The point of the story is that Jim couldn't exist in that world as a woman. Just a ship full of sailors and a giant dick thrusting out of the ocean. I gotta say, though, that giant dick looked pretty good. Yeah, it was a, that was a good two-page spread. Of a sea serpent. Yeah, a snake, a big snake. I mean, there aren't any real women in any of the stories I've heard tonight. We're just pretty figures in the background to be loved or lost or avoided or obeyed or whatever. Also, I want to say there's there's Miss Veltus. That is true. Miss Veltus, very good at her job. Badass old lady. Although I guess I understand you could kind of take Charlene's criticism that Veltus wasn't the protagonist of that story. Hermas was, but... She's the protagonist for the few pages that it's her story. Right. Kyra encounters that Charlene should remedy this by telling her story. I don't have a goddamn story, says Charlene, pouring ale into her mug. No? Then what do you have? Well, I've got a job I don't much like selling software. I've got an apartment that I loathe. I've got an ex-husband who comes over when he gets lonely and tries to talk me into having sex with him for old time's sake, and sometimes I even say yes. I joined a local theater group long enough to realize I'd never be an actor, and joined a writing circle long enough to realize I don't have anything to say worth writing down. I come home from the office every night and fix myself nothing much interesting to eat, or I send out for pizza, and I fall asleep in front of the TV. It's Christmas Eve, babe, and the drunk tank. What does that have to do with... We'll see a better one. When all our dreams come true. <laughs> oh, right. There's a Christmas party. Is that what you're alluding to? No, I was alluding to the fact that all of her dreams didn't come true. Oh. Well, I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Charlene's life hasn't gone the way that she hoped, and 
<laughs> yeah, so she mentions that she and Brant, they don't really know each other, they're hardly friends, but he felt her up once at a Christmas party, and they haven't spoken of it since. Brant says, Jesus, Charlene. I know that if I'd been driving, we wouldn't have come here. I'd never have gone off the road. I always knew what I was doing, you see, in my life. I don't need people. I've never needed other people. She buries her head in her hands. Brant asks if she's okay, and she says, Yes. No. Just leave me alone. And then she runs off. Brant says, Women, huh? What did I say? I mean, I didn't say anything. Well, you gotta laugh. And everybody <laughs> glares at him. <laughs> yeah, Brant's being a bit of a dick here. And plus his, what do you do face in this panel looks really stupid. Yeah, so they glare at him for being an idiot. Okay, so Lightning takes out a tree right next to the inn. Jesus, that was close. But Chiron notes that they're safe in the inn. It can't be harmed because it's constantly being created. After all, worlds are ending all the time. How do you know so much? Well, like you, friend Tucker, I have traveled here before. Those of us who journey between realms encounter it on occasion. This guy's the Chirurgeon, right? The Chirurgeon, yeah. One of the finest Chirurgeons in his world. Brant asks if he came here on purpose, but Chiron says no. A tavern is not a destination, just a place to rest along the way. Right, the tavern at World's End is never a destination. Jim asks Brant what his final destination is. He says he was going to Chicago to check out a job offer. And Chiron chimes in here with his own theory on reality storms, that they occur when realities meet like hot and cold fronts. Now at this point, Clericon kills half a page by singing drunkenly. Yeah, I didn't recognize his song, but he says, Gotta powder my nose. That's more a figure of speech. Really planning to puke, piss, and pass out again. Hopefully after I find the toilets. But then they all look out the window because something is happening outside. Something besides the storm. Yeah, and then Ron Jeremy, standing by the window, calls them all over. <laughs> I thought this guy had, a, had a, uh, an amusingly distinctive character design. I just couldn't put my finger on it. <laughs> And now I don't terribly want to. <laughs> and when you say Ron Jeremy, let's be clear that it's Ron Jeremy in a big red surcoat and a... What do you call that fucking hat? It's a blue hat with a point and possibly a feather in it. A tricorn hat? Yeah, something like a tricorn hat. I'm pretty sure that's just how Ron Jeremy it's dresses. It's Ron Jeremy as Robin Hood. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what he wears. You know, when he's wearing anything. <laughs> Alright, so, <laughs> for a two-page spread, we've got swirling colors in the sky as seen through the inn's windows. And the camera carries us out, between the cross pieces, slowly out into the sky. Yeah, and we also get kind of a color commentary. A yeah. commentary on colors. The onlookers, the onlookers are jostling for position. Cloricon is still singing. <laughs> By the gods, Cloricon, can't you breathe in the other direction? Now, in fact, for the next eight pages... We get all two-page spreads. Yeah, let's talk about more about what's in them before we get into the effect overall of the fact that it's all in two-page spreads. So we see Destiny, impossibly huge, walking across the sky. Brant says that he was staring out the windows at the inn at the end of words. Worlds. I meant worlds. I kind of thought of that as Gaiman's reference to the upcoming end of his series. Could be. Could be. Aren't there 20 issues left? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's going to take him a minute to wrap it up, but we're at the end, sort of. Okay. It's a big sky, Brant says, and it makes him feel like a tiny mote of dust. 
He doesn't know how long the walk takes. He says, I do not know how long he took to walk across the sky. Which to me suggests that, like, it was a very long time. And it's only because they're where they are between worlds that they could stand and witness it without dying or becoming exhausted or something. It's, it's a timeless event. And an unspeakably massive one. Yeah, so he realizes he's looking at a funeral procession. There's a man with a flag and people carrying a coffin, and they're all giants just walking across the sky. I don't know if we're supposed to recognize any of the people carrying the coffin. This one has swept back blonde or red hair. Yeah, I didn't take note of anyone in this particular page. They're accompanied by a low dirge. Pacing in unison, slow as time, Brant says. He begins to recall his own father's funeral, which felt empty to him. A meaningless act, a shadow of something real. The words said over my father's body were hollow and dumb, and I couldn't find it in me to cry, not then. I knew I was watching the real thing here. It was true grief in each step they took across the sky. And they shouldered the casket as if they were shouldering the weight of the world. This kind of reminds me of the Wild Hunt. Mm, yeah. You know the Wild Hunt? The king and the knights that ride across the sky. Right. Like the ghost riders in the sky. Of Norse mythology. Yeah. I don't know who I was crying for, and I hated myself for it, but I couldn't look away. Even though Brant knows, or at least believes, that the inn isn't real, what he's watching out the window feels real. It really seems to affect him. There was nothing left to hold on to, nothing left to believe. I was watching it, I couldn't look away, but part of me was watching myself watching the procession, and I realized that while I watched, I was being changed, I suppose. I was seeing something I couldn't describe, that I couldn't explain. I don't know what they were, I didn't know who had died, who they were mourning, whose casket they followed, but it didn't matter. They were there, in the sky, and I believed in miracles. I didn't have any choice. And we see the mourners now, a lot of people that we recognize. Merv Pumpkinhead, Wilkinson the Rat, Titania, Bast, Despair is there, so is Martin Tenbones. We see Odin and Thor and Emperor Norton and Fiddler's Green. And the last in the procession are two women who we recognize as delirium and death. Death is last, under a blood-soaked moon. Yeah, the moon becomes progressively more red and blood-soaked as she turns to look at Brant looking at her. The one at the end, I think I fell in love with her a little bit. Isn't that dumb? But it was like I knew her, like she was my oldest, dearest friend, the kind of person you can tell anything to, no matter how bad, and they'll still love you because they know you. I wanted to go with her. I wanted her to notice me. And then she stopped walking. Under the moon, she stopped, and she looked at us. She looked at me. Maybe she was trying to tell me something, I don't know. She probably didn't even know I was there. But I'll always love her, all my life. Yeah, this stuff, this is just incredible. We get this, this funereal procession of giants crossing the sky in a pretty clear callback to the Wild Hunt mm -hmm. from Norse mythology. Like you said, we've even got Odin. And it's just, it's just really awesome. The art is great. And the, the narration works with it in, in such a poetic way. This is some really incredible stuff. And this series of two-page spreads just really reinforces that we're at the end of the story. You know, it, right. it, brings, a, it brings a sense of gravity and completeness to what's going on. Yeah. Every one of these two-page spreads is awesome. And I mean that in the true sense, awe-inspiring. Right. Um, this really hits you like a brick and conveys that what we are seeing is something unspeakably massive and important. As the hostess said, something big has happened and there are echoes. Right. We also got great art of death here. 
Yeah, she's wearing a formal dress, which we know she hates to do. A little tiny Ankh pendant. She turns and looks at the camera with compassion in her eyes, but she lowers her head and slowly walks away. Yeah, and as her eyes recede, they kind of look like dreams' eyes, like stars in distant blackness. So, as the funeral procession goes away, the hostess announces, uh, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Right, this is the end of the storm, and it's safe for them to leave. If they step out of the doors of the world's end, they will be back in their own worlds. Miss, who were they? Those giants. What was that all about? I, I cannot say. Some of them I thought I recognized. But the storm is over, girl. There is a ship that waits for you. Cloricon is suddenly no longer drunk. Aye, I was. Alas, no longer. He's got to go back to Ferry and report this to Titania. I am the most unhappy soul alive, he says. I heard it said that fairies have no souls, Petrofax jumps in, remembering Cloricon's own words. Then I do ache and bleed and smart elsewhere. Still, call it a soul, for it is solely mine. <laughs> That's a nice bit of poetry. Yeah, rather Shakespearean, which, of course, Neil Gaiman's fairies always are. Petrifax wants to accompany Brant and Charlene back to their world. Klaproth says no, but Petrifax jumps on Chiron's back and rides off with him anyway. <laughs> I'm not fussy, lad. You can travel with me. Boy, here, if you're coming up, up on my back. Petrifax, abandon this folly, I tell you, or by Anko and the elders I shall... There we go, boy. Hold tight. And he just, just fucking rides right the fuck out of there. Brant invites Charlene to go, but she says she's not going back. She's going to stay and work in the inn. That's how the hostess came to be there, and everyone else who staffs the place. Yeah, she doesn't have a life back home, so she likes it here. She's going to stay. Proprietor said she could stay. It is true. She can stay here, if she works here. It's only by becoming part of it can you stay. Yeah, and we've got possibly Lady Shiva striking another Shiva-like pose here. I came here many years ago on my way to another journey, and when I tire of my work, that other journey still waits for me. You must go now, Brant Tucker. Charlene kisses him on the cheek and says, Goodbye, Brant. I'll be fine. We see Brant take one last look as he steps through the door. So then what happened? Brant is now sitting in a cocktail lounge in Chicago. Yeah, Brant is in our world. He's just told this story to a bartender, which means every story is one level deeper. Yes, that's right. He woke up in a McDonald's parking lot in the car. He discovers that the car belongs to him. There's no record of Charlene anywhere in the world anymore. Right, and then the car is unscratched, by the way. He never went back to his life in Seattle. Stayed here. The bartender asks if he could have imagined the whole thing. Often, but... Yeah, but... But then I remember looking up at those people in the sky. I remember crying for my father. I remember Charlene. Nobody else does, but I do. She tells him she's got to close up. He says he hopes he didn't bore her. She says, it's no problem. The bar was dead that night. Maybe because of the weather. I thought that was ironic. There's a storm going on, so there's no one in the cocktail lounge. Right, or the opposite of World's End. She tells him to drive safely, and he mentions that he doesn't drive anymore. It felt weird, driving this car of mine I knew I didn't own. Hey, thanks for listening. I suppose you must think I'm crazy. No, I don't. Maybe I ought to, but I don't. You hear a lot of weird stories behind a bar. I suppose you must do. Well, good night. Good night, she says as he walks alone into the night. And that's it, World's End. Good stuff. That's a really good issue. 
I loved the procession, and I loved that last two pages. Oh yeah, Brant in the pub. Yeah, I thought that really it puts such a such a nice cap on everything. This idea of you know what the experience has meant to Brant in the years since it happened. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. You know, I mention a lot the the Rose Walker position of weird stuff happens, you forget it and move on. But to Brant, this experience was kind of huge and defining. To Brant, this experience was real. It affects him in a lot of ways. It changed his life, even though all it was was hearing stories. Yeah. (laughs) Towards the end of Sandman, we are presented with the idea that hearing a story might change your life. (laughs) Yeah, I've got to say, I think this might be one of my favorite Sandman story arcs. Even though the stories contained within it were kind of hit and miss, and maybe even more misses than hits. But the idea of the in itself, Mm -hmm. and the people who are there, and, you know, what it's like for them to be there. Mm -hmm. And that last issue, where they all, you know, gather by the window and watch this big thing happen, I just loved. Yeah, we, um, we talked last week about, or last time we talked about this story, about the idea that the inn feels like the frame story for an anthology series. Like, the Sandman is moonlighting as an anthology series for six issues. Right. And really, like, you could write the Inn at World's End as an anthology series. Forget the Sandman trappings and just do it. But that's not quite what we get here, because... We get the endless in every story that's told. It's true. That's right. Yeah, I guess if you count death in um, Tale of Two Cities... Yeah, I don't know if, if any of them appear in uh, Hobbes' Leviathan. And there's a little Morpheus cameo. You see him on a train. Neither of them have a terribly large role in the story. Yeah. But in the last issue, it abandons the anthology format and tells us a story set fully in the inn. Right. And, and a story that ties together what all of these people are doing in the inn. That they were brought here as the result of the storm, which is itself the result of some massively significant event. Some event that perhaps we are being prepared for by this story arc. Yeah. And then at the end, a zombie climbs on the back of a centaur and just gallops the fuck off and gives his boss the finger. There's a lot of people giving their bosses the finger. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, Cluricon would like to, but he can't. Yeah. Although he does depose the boss of an entire city by throwing him out of a window. Yeah, but... It was sort of a hands-off throwing. But Petrifax gives the finger to Klaproth, and uh, Brandt also gives the finger to his old employers and just, you know, he takes some vacation to check out a job offer in Chicago, ends up taking the job in Chicago and never going back. Yeah, and Charlene never goes back to her job either. Right. Anyway, yeah. Good stuff, and it makes me really eager to see what's coming next in this series. The other thing worth maybe mentioning is that there's a lot of talent on this issue. Mm, yeah. Um, and in this story arc. And, you know, I think the conventional wisdom is that the more chefs you have, the worse it's going to be. Yeah, beware an episode with four writers is kind of a TV adage. And when you see four inkers on a book, you usually assume that it just got delivered late. It was a rush job. It was really hasty. Yeah. And there's, I think, also this ideal of, like, the perfect run is, like, one writer, one artist, a hundred (laughs) issues. Right. (laughs) You know? No change in creative team whatsoever. But this, there's a kind of alchemy that goes on with all these different art styles. Yeah, each of the inkers, there are three inkers on the end sequences, but there's also Steve Lealoha and 
the funeral art team, Gary Amaro and Tony Harris, who each have a very different style and task in front of them. Right. The inn team, you know, presents these characters with enough realism that they all feel like they make sense in the same world, even though they're really a grab bag of bizarre character designs. And then Lealoa, at the end, has to do the, uh, the more real scene, the gritty realism scene. Right. Yeah, which, you know, the fact that the art is different makes it feel really different and makes it really feel like it works, I think. Gaiman talks, too, in the, the forewords and afterwards in various places where he gets to talk about the Sandman series, about the fact that he, the very specific fact that he doesn't work with just one artist on the series, and that he always tries to pair the story he's got with the artist he knows he's going to have to work with. He tries right. to pick people who are good for the style of the story. Because genre and tone are all over the place in this series. Right, like the way that he made... Was it Jill Thompson in The Doll's House? Jill Thompson Jill did Thompson most of in, Game of You. In ga- right, Jill Thompson in Game of You. That's, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah and, how, like, and how she was a perfect fit for that kind of fairy tale yeah, art yeah. style. Yeah, so wonderful work and really builds the enthusiasm for what's to come. Enthusiasm and a little trepidation, perhaps. Right. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, Sean's going to be reading American Carnage, number one, by Brian Hill and Leandro Fernandez. Here goes. Okay, this was American Carnage, number one, Freedom, story by Brian Hill, art by Leandro Fernandez, and colors by Dean White. And what happens in this comic? We open on a sort of an inquest with this woman who seems to be sort of our main character or one of our main characters, Agent Curry. She's kind of banged up because she has just been in an incident which we're slowly finding out about, which is that she went to question this white supremacist guy, Ross Johnston, about the murder of her partner, Bernie Watson who we see here has been hanged from a tree with a derogatory term for an African-American pinned to his chest. Although we're going to learn later that he's white. Well, yeah, that's not all it says. But yeah. Yeah. And when she went to question this white supremacist guy, he had a suicide vest and he blew up himself and his wife and daughter. And the FBI wants to consider it case closed, but Agent Curry thinks that this was all arranged by a guy named Wynne Morgan, who's kind of a Trump-esque figure, a charismatic conservative, although later they mention him as a MAGA true believer, so he doesn't, he's not the equivalent of Trump, because he shares a universe with Trump. Right. So she recruits this guy Richard Wright, an FBI agent who was fired some years ago for shooting an unarmed black man. Yeah, the guy he goes to pull out a phone. For his phone. Yeah. 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 And he's, like, having nightmares about it, where uh, we're given to understand. Yeah. She recruits Wright to investigate Morgan, and he goes and meets Morgan at a public speaking engagement. He's speaking to a black church and actually seems to be winning people over. He's right, a very charismatic messenger for uh, right-wing ideas. Yeah. And then he meets with her daughter, who offers to give him a community service job, but first she invites him to a party at Morgan's house where he goes, and this part kind of strains belief, because he goes to this party, and she says, My father would like to meet with you, Mr. King, but the dogs need to smell you first. Welcome to real America. Yeah, and, and there's, like, there's, this, there's this bunch of militia guys gathered with, uh, with 
camo pants and automatic weapons, and a burning cross in the back. There's a big burning cross in the background. Yeah. It yeah, and like this is the no part... way that would not be visible from, uh, <laughs> from outside. Yeah, exactly. This is the part that I kind of lost the thread, because Morgan is apparently keeping his name clean, despite the fact that he's having a party for his supporters at his house with a burning cross. Like, if Agent Wright could get in here, then there's a reporter here, too. Well, he hasn't gotten in yet. The dogs have to smell him. Yeah, that's a good point. But the party is not really the part I want to talk about. Okay. So what did you think about Wright? The character of Wright? Yeah. Like, do you find him sympathetic? I think we're... I don't really like anybody in this comic, but... (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) But are you thinking that they pushed really hard to make Wright a sympathetic character? Right, yeah. It's like he shot an unarmed black kid... But he feels really bad about it. And now he's, like, kind of down on his luck. And, you know... Yeah, and he's, um... He possibly has this romantic past with a black woman. Not racist, not racist, not racist, you know? Yeah, and he's, um... They mention here that he's half black, half white, passable for white. Oh, I forgot about that part. Okay. And he makes a comment to the effect that if he hadn't been, he probably would have gotten in more trouble for the shooting incident. I see. He says that if the Bureau didn't bury it, he'd be a face on a picket sign. That's what he said about uh, about the shooting incident. Yeah. So it's not really his heritage that, that shielded him. It's the Bureau that shielded him from that. Yeah, but I think it's implied that that's because he's half black. Okay. He also employs prostitutes. Yeah, he's, he's really down on his luck. He's working as a PI, but he's not really working at all. And we do get a scene towards the end of the comic, too, where he's had the meeting with Morgan's... Uh, well, the phrase that Jed Bartlett used was blonde Republican sex kitten. Daughter here. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, not to read too much into her being blonde, but do I think that it's deliberate that she looks like the kind of women who stand up for Donald Trump on Fox News? Yes. Right, yeah. I, no, I think that is deliberate. And I, I I thought that the scene where where he, you know, he's trying to go undercover as a white supremacist, so he uses the N-word, and she chastises him, despite the fact that she's, like, a white supremacist leader, <laughs> basically. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, there's a certain there's a certain coyness here, which is apparently working for Morgan, because as I said, he's keeping his name clean, and he's actually winning supporters in black communities. Um, and I, I was getting at this scene towards the end where where Wright reports to Agent Curry that he's he's sort of gotten his foot in the door, and he says, they seem like nice, rich white people. Those still exist. Yeah. Um, he's wrong about that. We're going to find out by the end of the issue. That's also the scene where he kisses her unexpectedly. Yes. Which read as really uncomfortable for both of them. Yeah. So, yeah. So I go back to the question of, like, what did you think about Wright? Did you think it managed to make him sympathetic? I don't know. I don't really like him. I admit that sort of the worst moment that he's got here is when he's pretending to be racist, and we know that he's pretending. Yeah. Well... So my kind of thoughts on this are, this is a very, this is a very sharply political comic book. Yes. Right? And this, I have to admit, this was like the one that I wasn't looking forward to out of the Vertigo promos, because American Carnage is a phrase that comes directly from the the Trump lexicon. Right, yeah. The bad guy is literally a Trump supporter, like literally and explicitly a Trump supporter. But what seems strange to me is for it to be so sharply political, and yet so uncritical in its presentation of the FBI. Hmm, okay. Right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Like, this is a clearly really left-leaning book. Not only left-leaning, but like, you know, finger on the pulse of current events kind of thing. You know, it's very much set in this 
and this kind of moment in our country. And yet, like, the FBI are just presented as, like, uncomplicatedly good guys. Yeah, and Agent Wrights, having been involved in shooting an innocent person, is presented as his backstory. Yeah. Not uh, fully examined as a tragedy into itself. Yeah, that's true, too. It's just, like, it just kind of exists to give him... To give him a reason to be, like, this kind of vagabond outsider kind of guy. Yeah. I was thinking that I knew who Brian Hill was. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking of Brian Wood. (laughs) This is a different guy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, This guy is going to be the writer for Batman and the Outsiders when that book launches. All right. Sometime in the next month or two. But uh, I don't think I know any any of his work, really, so far other than this. So, are you going to read issue number two of uh, American Carnage? Well, I'm a little curious, but I'm not really hooked. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, moving on. Insert some words from our sponsors. Uh-huh. You know, Squarespace. Buy cat food. <laughs> your cat will love it. <laughs> Just <laughs> anything. Feed your cats. It's much better than the no cat food you've been getting so far. In our next Sandman episode, I can't believe it, but we're finally going to start to see what was up with the kindly ones. But first, join us next week as John Constantine discovers Love Kills. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. Vertigize is spelled V-E-R-T-I-G-U-Y-S. Blueberry, in this context, is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. If you want to get in touch with us on that aforementioned social media, you can reach Eric at Vertigize, spelled the same way, and you can reach me at BlankCastSean, B-L-A-N-K-C-A-S-T-S-E-A-N, proper Irish way. Here, here. You can send us an email, vertigize at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertigize. And hey, wherever you happen to be listening to the show, if you want to leave us a positive review uh, to spread the word about Vertigais, if you want to tell your friends about Vertigais in a real-life face-to-face conversation, you know, sell the heck out of it. (laughs) But of course, thank you very much for listening. Thanks, everybody. That's the comment I made about Iron Fist, is that there's no moral, there's no gray area here, because Davos goes so far and so fast off the end of the slippery slope. Right. But no, yeah, you know how you can, like, look up uh, public health records for restaurants? Yeah. I'm imagining Davos just, like, going through those. (laughs) (laughs) There's that guy, right, who keeps the list, who basically tells Davos who to kill, and Davos is like, okay. Hasn't cleaned out his grease traps in four months. For this he pays tonight. But this guy could be like, they forgot my shrimp cocktail and said <laughs> <laughs> The menu said luscious prawns. <laughs> <laughs> These were less than luscious. <laughs> <laughs> oh man.